Hey there, are you sick and tired of feeling sick and tired? Join Adol Kozilski and Fagy Stern as they explore ways to reverse chronic illness and achieve vibrant health. Your health is your only wealth and together we can be better. Hashtag Healthy You, Wealthy You. Good morning, good morning from Johannesburg. This is the Healthy You Wealthy Show. I'm Adel Kozilski. And I'm Fagy Stern. Oh, indeed. <laughs> and we love being together on a Wednesday morning. It's my favorite part of, of, of the week because we just spend a quality one hour discussing our health. Today we have a known guest, somebody that doesn't need a lot of introduction, but really well beloved to everybody. That is Dr. Jack Castle. He has been uh, around the world and we're glad that he's back in Joburg and able to be with us today as always to share his knowledge. Today we're going to be having a discussion of some of the factors contributing to longevity. And I certainly think that we can accept um, what Dr. Tussle um, is going to say, because thank God he has practiced it. And um, the proof is in the pudding. Good morning, Dr. Tussle. Morning, Faggy. Good morning, Adel. It'll be a pleasure to outline some of them. And right. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start because it's fairly long. And any questions we can interrupt in between. But I'd like to get through all the salient facts first, if possible. We're seeing the average lifespan of both male and female continuing to increase each year. This occurred to me when I realized myself that I had exceeded my statistical lifespan by about 10 years, along with millions of other people on this earth. And I began to ask myself the question, really serious question, why am I still alive? My discussion will center on two main headings. The first heading is the advances made in medical science over the last century. The second heading is the most important heading of all, the holistic approach in understanding the influence of diet and the environment in shaping our lives. And finally, I hope to wrap it all up by showing how both headings combine with each other to give the improvement in life expectancy, which I'll project. Let us start first with the main factors influencing medical science. There are four important groups. The first group is the antibiotic era which really got underway with Alexander Fleming uh, in 1944. The second group is the vaccine era, which really got underway in 1798 with Jenner's discovery of the smallpox vaccine. The third group is the immune or antibody era, which got underway in 1950 via a man called Damaschek, who described autoimmune disease, a disease where the body was capable of destroying itself. Probably the most important field of medicine today. And then, of course, the mysterious group that is leading to all the great discoveries today, the genetic era, the influence of genetics on inheritance in shaping our lives. I will start with antibiotics. 
Antibiotics, I have said, were first formulated by Fleming in about 1928, but only penicillin was synthesized and used in 1944. And since then, there is no question that antibiotics have saved millions and millions of lives in the management of the dread diseases and continue to do so. However, in so doing, a situation has arisen whereby bacteria have developed resistance. The very pattern of infection has changed from the 1950s to today, whereas in 1950, 90 to 95% of infections were bacterial and 5 to 10% were viral. Today, it's the other way around. 95% are viral and the rest are bacteria, uh, 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 and the 5 to 10% are bacterial. Now, why has this happened? I remember clearly, and I've remembered it throughout my practice, the words of the late Professor Gear, the Dean of Medicine and Chairman of the World Health Organization at our graduation ceremony in November 1960. The title of his talk to the new doctors that were going out into the big wide world was The Art of Medicine is Knowing When Not to Prescribe. The art of being a doctor is to know when and how to use medicine. Unfortunately, this is sometimes lost on some of us. The overusage of antibiotics has gradually led to a situation we have compromised our own immunity by destroying the very good bacteria that are responsible for immunity in our gut. They're the first to be destroyed by the antibiotics and by the indiscriminate use of antibiotics. So it's time to catch a wake-up call. If we're going to preserve the effectiveness of antibiotics, it's to use them judiciously and effectively. Already we are seeing a situation in some of our elderly patients and in some of our intensive care units where so-called killer bacteria have arisen. Despite the fact that all the new antibiotics have been formulated, they're still not developing antibiotics that can kill some of the germs. The germs are getting more and more resistant. So to my colleagues, To everybody around, just be careful. Antibiotics are valuable, but need to be used judiciously and effectively. Secondly, vaccinology. Dr. Kassel, before we just carry on with that, um, you know, I know that personally I've engaged with you a number number of times, but maybe can we just give our listeners like one or two pointers as to when you're saying to use it judiciously, um, obviously, that's a cry out to the, the, the medical fraternity to use it judiciously. But if you are not in a situation where the doctor is using it judiciously, what pointers can the layman have? Like, how do I know when it's time for an antibiotic and when not? Well, first of all, use your first indication as a pointer, temperature. You know, you still hear the talk coming across from people I've, my child's got a temperature, I must break the temperature. 
You don't need to break the temperature. The temperature is there because his own antibody system or her antibody system is working. The natural defenses are working. So as long as the natural defenses are working, why go and impede them? Just control them. See that the temperature doesn't get under control. People don't die usually with a temperature. They die because of a lack of temperature. They don't respond, immunize. So temperature is a very good sign that you're effectively stimulating your own immunity. The second thing is to take, for heaven's sake, to take a swab. The argument from the doctor will be, if I have to see 20 or 30 patients in an afternoon, how can I swab them all? It's going to cost them a fortune and it's going to waste a lot of time. So you can only really, to, you can't introduce that thing until we reduce the cost of medical, medical investigation because it does cost people a lot of money to take nasal and throat swabs and they can't always do it. The third thing is to wait for the body's own immune system to manifest itself. Don't rush to an antibiotic. Give it 12 to 24 hours, and provided the child is improving and not not deteriorating, let the immune system take over. Let the let the temperature proceed. Let it come down gradually in step ladder fashion. That's what's supposed to be. You don't have to break the temperature immediately and make the child have a normal temperature. That's probably the most effective pointer to what you should do. Thank you. That is actually very important pointers. And I think, I mean, it takes sometimes a lot of guts, right? Baby? You know, like, a, like a kid that's just moaning and crying and it's just easy to give them some calpol or some neurofensive so that they do feel better, but you're actually prolonging. That's what they say. Test. Don't guess. Exactly. Exactly. We're speaking to Dr. Castle and we are getting some pointers of factors that will affect or contribute to your longevity. If you would like to join the conversation, our SMS line is 34519 and our telegram number is 061-895-1019. This is 101.9. Hi, FM. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. We're speaking to Dr. Kassel and we are talking about about the, con- the contribution, what stuff we can uh, contribute to your longevity. We've discussed the uh, antibiotics and the need to use it judiciously. Um, are we going on to our second our second topic, Dr. We're, we're going on to vaccinology. Right. The subject of vaccines, which is, which is a very, very pertinent subject today. The first vaccine to be introduced was introduced in 1798 by a man called Jenner. Uh, it was the smallpox vaccine. And to my knowledge, since the introduction of vaccines, vaccines have continued to develop to this very day and have altered the outcome of some of the most dreaded diseases known to mankind. Just to quote the four probably most important ones, polio, TB, measles, and meningitis. I stand to be corrected, but I believe that smallpox is still the only disease so far that has been completely eradicated by the use of a vaccine. A very, very important point. 
What has arisen is a change in the pattern of infections over the past 50 years. Most of the diseases are now viral, and viruses are notoriously known to mutate. They change their form to resist the vaccines. This is true especially of the respiratory viruses. They can sometimes create more virulent forms, and this requires periodic modification of the vaccine. This is particularly true of polio vaccine. Since 1952, when Jonas Salk and our own South African scientists who didn't receive the recognition for it, by the way, developed the polio vaccine, the polio vaccine has had to be modified many times. And thank the Almighty that this has been possible. The day might arise when it will not be possible, and then we'll be back to square one. Likewise with the measles vaccine, likewise with the TB vaccine, and likewise with all the, all, all, all the viruses that have been, uh, that we have isolated and identified. It's not to say that vaccines haven't saved millions and millions of lives and continue to save millions and millions of lives. In the 18th century, <clears throat> in the 1800s, so closely following on the smallpox vaccine came the diphtheria vaccine, the cholera vaccine and the rabies vaccine, all life-threatening diseases. More recently, the most significant vaccine to be developed was the polio vaccine in 1952, and that has made a marked change to morbidity and mortality from polio. And so we come to the present day where we've just developed a meningococcal vaccine for meningococcal meningitis, which also saves innumerable children from certain deaths from meningococcal meningitis. So nobody is disputing the value of vaccines. What I am disputing is that vaccines should really be used to counter morbidity, death, and mortality. In other words, the pandemic phases of a viral illness. Again, I stand to be corrected. I'm not a virologist, but the severe pandemic outbreaks that have occurred over the last century have been the Asian flu, the, uh, the avian flu, the swine flu, and most, most recently the COVID-19 epidemic. No doubt in the pandemic phase, the routine vaccination of everybody saved millions and millions of lives. But it's also known that viral mutations occur and tend to result in less virulent forms of the disease. And as they mutate down, as the COVID-19 has done to Omnicon variant, it's virtually a harmless type of respiratory virus. And there are already three types of COVID living inside us from previous infections. So there's no need, in my opinion, to panic about COVID still being present in the Omnicon form. Therefore, in my opinion, vaccines should only be used to counter diseases which result in significant mortality and morbidity and should not be used routinely. Again, the judicial and effective use is necessary. We come thirdly 
to the immune or antibody era. This has probably been the most significant development in medical science in the last century. In 1950, uh, a a London-based scientist called Damashek discovered what he, or formulated what he called autoimmune disease. He showed that when the body got an infection, you developed a tiny little protein called an antibody. And this antibody then was programmed to attack any bacteria which was which it was formulated against and to eliminate it from the system. Unfortunately, in some cases, the antibody became errant or a bad antibody and didn't only attack the bacteria in the throat or the virus in the throat, but it attacked body tissues. And in this way, nephritis was described, rheumatoid arthritis was described, hemolytic anemia was described, bruising or purpura was described, skin rashes were described. And when all all of them occurred together, that represented a breakdown of the immune system and that gave you the disease of lupus erythematosus. That's how lupus was discovered. So yes, unfortunately with antibody, uh, with the discovery of the antibody, it, it was first highlighted by showing how bad the antibody could be in this causing autoimmunity. And of course, this is the great argument now which, which I'll come to at the, at the end of antibody discussion. Whether our repeated stimulations of the immune system cannot produce a similar picture. When you give a vaccine, you stimulate the immune system. And when you stimulate an immune system, you produce antibodies. And the great fight goes on today as to whether you could possibly have caused myocarditis with your vaccine, whether you could have caused Bell's palsy with your vaccine whether you could have uh, done other things by producing errant antibody. Again, the same argument applies. Don't use uh, vaccines or antibiotics. Use them judiciously and with indication to prevent morbidity and mortality because somewhere you may strike the wrong antibody and cause trouble. With the discovery of the bad gene, I became the amazing discovery of the good antibody, sometimes by accident, sometimes purposefully. And the good antibody, what is an antibody? An antibody is a protein that arises in the bone marrow to counteract (coughs) intruders from without and intruders from within. Now, what is the greatest intruder from within? It's the malignant tumor, the cancer. When a cancer arises in the body, it's an intruder in the body. And the body produces its own anti-cancer vaccine, which they've now clearly shown, funnily enough, leading the world in this is Israel. And second behind Israel comes uh, 
comes America, and we are also here very up to date with this. It's the use of what they call monoclonal antibody as an adjunct to the treatment of cancer. The treatment of cancer has always been surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy. Today, there is a fourth adjunct to this. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the other three are not necessary. They may one day be unnecessary as antibody therapy gets more and more developed. But at the moment, antibody therapy is a very useful adjunct to cancer chemotherapy. They simply take the blood out of the patient and probably the reason why the cancers have risen in the first place is that your anti-cancer vaccine that you produce yourself has become too low and it's allowed the tumor to grow. And as soon as it gets too low, your tumor grows. They've taken the blood out of the patient. They've, re- they've concentrated the antibody in the laboratories. They've re-injected the highly concentrated antibody and lo and behold, there are people living today where the tumors have disappeared, where the secondaries have disappeared. We have somebody that we know very closely, a friend of ours, who had stage four breast cancer and was cured in Israel by adjunct antibody therapy. So this is where medicine is going. And this is undoubtedly making a very big difference to the lifespan. Funnily enough, with all the controversy that went on with the vaccines, Moderna vaccine recently published a paper where they routinely vaccinated in the pandemic every single person in a particular situation. They found that of the people they vaccinated, there were 16 patients with pancreatic cancer. Now, pancreatic cancer is the death sentence. You don't recover from that. They found subsequently that of the patients that they vaccinated inadvertently, eight of those 16 patients had gone into remission as a result of the Moderna vaccine. In other words, the antibody to COVID produced in the Moderna vaccine somehow miraculously also counted the growth of the pancreatic tumor. And this is where medical science is going today. Each and every day new discoveries are being made. I'll pause a moment in case you want to ask any questions because I want to go on to a holistic therapy. That's mainly... We're talking to Dr. Cussell, and if you would like to ask Dr. Cussell a question, 34519 is our SMS line. 0618951019 is our telegram number. I think I just, just in, in your whole discussion with vaccines, and um, I know that we've debated it a lot, um, I, I think we should just try and make it clear, particularly now, for example, there's, there's chickenpox running around. Um, the schools and, and kids are getting it. And, you know, there's vaccinate, you have to vaccinate. No, don't vaccinate. You know, and so you're saying to use the vaccines judiciously, to use it for mobility, you know, um, maybe in high-risk patients. Let, let's discuss it, because today as a young mother, and thank you, you'll know more than me. That's so, a, that's a very good question, because I feel like we actually don't know what to do or what not to do. You know, we're told we have to do this. We have to tick off 
all the things on the on the forms, get this vaccination, get that vaccination, and it has to be done. So I think, Dr. Castle, just hearing what you have to say, is it's, it's almost confusing as a patient to know what to do and what not to do. Well, uh, this is a program on its own, but since you've raised the, pro- the problem of chickenpox, all I can say is I still believe in what our grandmothers did, took us to children with chickenpox as children, gave us chickenpox and gave us immunity for life. You can have the chickenpox vaccine, yes. We still don't know how many people get resistant to this vaccine in adulthood. The adult form of chickenpox is a very serious form of the disease, and therefore you're far better off having it as a child. The argument that will be used is, of course, that you, you, you can cause shingles. Well, I've just practiced medicine for a long, long time, and I can't say that I've ever seen shingles really kill anybody. It's, it's, it's important in the elderly, and you can always vaccinate those sort of people. But to routinely go and vaccinate a population against chickenpox, I would still say no, but please. Before you take me on for this, I know it's advocated here in South Africa. I know people do it. I would not do it. Okay, thank you. I think that was that. That's that, that's an important. Just again, we're dropping ideas and and a lot and and um, asking for you to think a little bit more broadly than you know just going and injecting for every single disease around out there. We do have an immune system. And it's, if we treat it nicely and correctly, it's going to work. And so I think judicial is, I think, the, the, the best word to describe what Dr. Kassel is saying. Okay, let's, let's, let's continue. All right. We go on to holistic therapy. The holistic approach has largely been neglected with a tremendous hysteria that accompanied antibiotics, vaccinations, and to a certain extent, antibodies. But the better understanding of our natural resources that are available to control our destiny is still the biggest factor in prolonging our lifespan. The statement that the three biggest disorders of disease disorders of mankind that kill people, the three biggest ones are diabetes, coronary thrombosis and strokes, and cancers, and all these three are dietary and environmentally linked, unquestionably, with probably a strong genetic basis. This has gradually been uncovered by the better understanding of genetic disorders, and undoubtedly genetics is the next big field of medicine that is going to arise proving that environmental and more specifically dietetic factors are influencing our very lives and shaping our destiny. The knowledge that each gene in a chromosome is responsible for the emergence of one enzyme that leads to the proper working of the body's metabolic functions has led to the covering, uncovering of many disorders daily, in fact, that are dietary linked and how diet and our environment and its correction is a vital factor in influencing our lives. However, we still have a very long road to travel. 
uh, and to elucidate the work on the dietary factors, the role of certain carbohydrates and sugars in setting the foundation for obesity, high blood pressure, and subsequent heart attacks and strokes is well understood. And let me tell you, their papers now being published where incorrect feeding of the baby in the first six months of life, where you push uh, porridges into them three times a day and overload them with carbohydrate, that lays the ground for your coronary thrombosis and your strokes. It's too late to start riding a bicycle when you're 50 or 60 years old and you've had a heart attack. The ground is already there for all this by incorrect eating, incorrect diet. The role of certain unhealthy fats is well understood in laying the ground for heart disease and aceroma and coronary thrombosis. The environmental role of radiation, pollutants, tobacco, is even more clearly understood. The Germans, uh, the Americans did the classic experiment on the Japanese when they dropped two atomic bombs on them. 95% of the people that were within a six-mile radius of the bomb and survived the explosion developed malignancies of the hemopoietic system, leukemias, lymphomas, Hodgkin's, and various other disorders. So don't lose sight of the fact that this is still the most important factor in influencing longevity. And when we get all these things together, maybe we'll also start to achieve uh, Abraham's longevity of 120-so years and Sarah's of 90 having babies and that sort of thing. I'm not sure that I'm a baby at 90, but amen to that. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. Okay, so we've we've discussed all the different um, aspects of why we are looking at longevity now, the differences in medicine, where we're going from, from there, Dr. Castle. Where we're going from there is to try and examine some of the real reasons. These are postulated reasons and probably very, very true in the great percentage of cases. But the first thing that I must state is that this, for me personally, would not be possible without the guiding hand of Hashem that I've used throughout my life. Whatever anybody tells me that I've saved a life, I correct them. And I say, it's not me that saved a life. I'm an agent of Hashem, and I distribute my knowledge according to what Hashem puts into my head. And I firmly believe that. And when he stops putting that knowledge into my head, I'll stop doing these programs. And I've got to say that I wish that all doctors would see themselves simply as agents of Hashem and that, 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 that Hashem, and for anybody who doesn't know who Hashem is, we're talking about the good Lord. Um, that, you know, that God guides them because many, many times you feel so intimidated by the fact that, you know, the doctor does have a lot more knowledge, but it's their way or the highway as opposed to having that humble. And that's why it's such that humbleness. And that's why it's such a pleasure talking to you. The second big factor is in your life, you have to have a healthy environment and it has to be a healthy home environment. Your show says it all. The healthy you, the wealthy you. 
What is wealth? It's not money. Far from it. It's a happy marriage. It's a good wife that stands by you throughout your career. It's a happy children that help you to develop and make you happy. It's as the old Yiddish expression goes, he had patrus, he had grief, and therefore he died young. This is mm. so true. The, the, the healthy you, wealthy you means a healthy home environment and a healthy social environment. And that, Baruch Hashem, thank the Lord I've had. So that's the second big factor in my longevity. And, uh, I just have to, 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 to say here that on a healthy you, wealthy show, Faggy and I are concentrating on bringing on, um, speakers to talk about our mental health and the ability for ourselves to, to heal our emotions and our mental state and the way we look at things because yes, it does play an incredibly important part. I think also we can add to our community. Yes. You know, being part of a community and uh, we can see it clearly today how being part of people that support each other and are there for each other, um, you know, even thank God in our community, you have a baby, you have a huge support system. Yeah. You have meals brought to your homes. You have people looking out for your kids. You have lift schemes, you know, being done. And just having that, like, family support, community support, is really is a huge factor. And finally, it's lifestyle. The lifestyle you get yourself used to, is the lifestyle that will ultimately determine your fate. I've stayed off alcohol all my life, most of my life. I've stayed off cigarette smoking and tobacco, and I've certainly stayed off drugs. So those are big factors in influencing longevity. Whatever you do medically, with medical science, and whatever you do holistically with trying to alter your diet and environment, you can do nothing if you don't alter your home environment and your your actual lifestyle. That's the most important thing of all, and that's the see. That's probably one of the secrets of longevity. So I think, I think the amazing thing that I'm, I'm getting from this whole show, Dr. Kessel, is that you're trying. You're basically saying that anything that is not natural from the outside that you're putting into your body and into your mind is what causes the illness. So the negative thoughts, Absolutely. the negative environment, the, the chemicals, the antibiotics, the vaccinations, the bad foods, anything that wasn't really God-made or something that your body doesn't need is what's causing the illnesses. Absolutely. Whereas all these things are tremendous advances in saving lives, to a certain extent I also believe that they are very, very important factors in limiting lives. And what you're saying, Faggy, is absolutely true. Uh, I think that I we also do have to be a little bit careful as to when, like, you know, having the right person guide you because, you know, my son had a sore throat, but everyone had a sore throat. And then to me, it was like it wasn't getting better, but everyone else's wasn't getting better either. And then clearly I called Dr. Cussell. Dr. Cussell mm-hmm. says, go and get a throat swab. And guess what? It was strep and he needed an antibiotic. And tell that doesn't have antibiotics when they have strep can cause big problems in their lives. So, yes, of course. you know, just having that correct guidance is, is pretty huge. And also that we should be able to take certain things in our control. Like if I want to say to a doctor, 
I need to have a swab. Like, I, I don't want to just give antibiotics. I'd like to take a swab and understand whether I have to or not. Exactly, but they'll count, that's, our argument will be countered by the fact that a swab is expensive. A swab takes 24 to 48 hours to come about. All sorts of arguments. But it's not really a valid argument. If you really had the time to do the thing, and you had the time to do it properly, that is the correct thing to do. Dr. Castle, we've got just a couple of minutes. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to actually call for a break now, and then we have uh, just a quick two questions that our listeners have asked that we would like uh, your opinion on. This is the Healthy You Wealthy Show. This is 101.9 High FM. This is the Healthy You Wealthy You Show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. Dr. Castle, we're going to have to make another uh, show because there's like quite a few questions and we haven't got too many, uh, too much time left. So let's see how quickly we can answer them, maybe a minute each. Uh, one listener said, I recently watched a YouTube video about the use of aspirin. The presentation was made by a retired doctor from Cardiff University that aspirin, um, that aspirin reduces the risk of cancer by 20%. Any comments on that, the use of aspirin? Well, I have, I have no knowledge of it, uh, of what she's saying, but I can only uh, postulate that aspirin probably works by the antibody system that um, uh, formulates an antibody response to a malignant tumor and in some way influences this because that's the only way you can really reduce the incidence by building up your antibodies. But aspirin is known to to be preventative in cardiac disease. Whether it's preventative in malignant disease, I have no knowledge of that. Okay. Next question is, can you ask the doctor about a protein pump inhibitor for acid reflux? Surely this medication affects the immunity of the body. Um um, it unnaturally affects the acid in the stomach. Your comment? Well, everything that the Almighty gave us in our bodies is necessary. And unfortunately, one of them is acid in the stomach. Acid well, in the stomach. We, would, we wouldn't be able to digest. You no? know what's actually interesting? Dr. Castle, isn't it so that people with too much acid in the body actually is that they need hydrochloric acid? No, what what too little acid in the body does is it renders the membranes of the gastrointestinal tract more susceptible to malignant changes. So if you completely go about obliterating all your acids and carry on swallowing your antacids every night and having massive meals and going on taking antacid after antacid after antacid, you eventually blot out your acid, your own natural acids in the stomach, which is a very bad thing to do, because there they have shown that there's an increased incidence of malignancy of the bowel in, in people uh, that take perpetually take antacids. Okay, One thing, uh, Sorry, continue. 
One thing that I might suggest, we may, we maybe one day we'll have a program where they can just ask their questions. Indeed, indeed, indeed. I think you might, and I think lemon water. To <laughs> uh, the person who is taking a protein pump, um, pump okay. inhibitor, uh, I would suggest speak to somebody about your diet. Have a look what foods are, uh, you know, causing it. Um, I did, I used to have a lot of reflux, I, and, uh, I fixed it all up just getting the right foods and the right stuff in, into me without any protein pump, uh, proton pump inhibitors. Lastly, uh, 30 seconds, what about cell phone radiation and Wi-Fi? What about? Cell phone radiation and Wi-Fi. Well, they, they have shown a statistical increase in brain tumors over the years from the time when brain tumors were almost totally extinct to the time now when they've increased. I'm not sure of the exact percentages, but there's definitely been an increase. And you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't really apply. They've modified cell phones now and Wi-Fi, uh, to, uh, to, to, where you don't keep the phone against your ear and compress it against your head. But we once did an experiment at medical school where we attached uh, Geiger counters to our bodies and measured the amount of radiation going on in the atmosphere. Hmm. And you'd be quite horrified to know the amount, the extent of radiation that occurs, especially around the hospitals, especially around the machines. And this must be effective because the incidence of certain types of tumor are on the increase, and this is that you're destroying your environment. Now, there you have it there, and I think even in that, I think it's a thing about moderation. We don't have to have the phones right near our faces. You can spend some time off social media. It will make you actually happier and healthier. Um, going outside into the sun and getting the sun's radiation um, in a healthy way, breathing fresh air, going out for walks. Eating the healthy foods. And eating the healthy foods. I think that sums it all. Dr. Castle, as always, it's been an incredible pleasure talking to you. We could talk to you forever and ever, and we really do appreciate um, you giving us of your wisdom. And as I, as I said at the beginning of the show, the proof is in the pudding. We're looking at a, a young man who has, has aged gracefully and has all his faculties together and has followed these principles. And really that is something that, you know, strengthens us and motivates us. So thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Rachel, for those kind words. And Mir Sashim, I'll be there until I turn 100, which is oh, this is <laughs> This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You Show, 101.9 High FM. Thank you so much.